the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Okay, welcome everyone. You're listening to This Must Be The Place. This is Elizabeth Taylor, now of Monash University, and I'm sitting here today in... It's like a, a modern version of a library, Kathleen Symes. It's not even called a library. It's just a space. In I think that there's something about learning center. I don't. Th- it's like library is daggy now. That yeah, use learning yeah. Surprised it's not called a hub. Mm-hmm. In Carlton, mm-hmm. city of Melbourne facility, and I'm joined by Professor Caroline Weitzman. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, Liz. It's great to see you. Good to see you too, but we won't be seeing you for much longer. No, next week I go back to Canada after having been in Melbourne uh, back and forth since 1991. And of course I'll be back again to visit, but it looks like moving back to Canada. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to get your reflections on that time you've been in Melbourne or coming to Melbourne and what you think some of the lessons are and... Mm. um, the research you've undertaken here and where it's headed and also talk a bit about your research here yeah so can we start with when did you when did you first come to melbourne and how do you think the city's changed since then i first came to i first got in touch with people in melbourne uh in 1988 i got in touch with margot huxley who was at rmit at the time and um, I had heard, I forget exactly how, uh, that they were um, advocating against a bid for the Olympics, um, the 1996 Olympics. And uh, Toronto, where I lived at the time, was also bidding for the Olympics. And um, uh, I had some concerns about those bids. So in 1988, I was part of an advocacy organization called Women Plan Toronto, and we were part of a larger advo- uh, advocacy coalition, and we'd actually um, borrowed the name that um, uh, Melbourne was using, Bread Not Circuses. <laughs> so this is this is going back a while. This is going back 30 years now. So, um, you know, we were using the early interwebs when it was really a series of tubes, and I was getting in touch with Margot and saying, so so, you know, what issues are you talking about in order to get people on board to question the worth of the Olympics? Um, so I got in touch, to make a long story short, with Melbourne about advocacy, but while we were talking about advocacy, Margot said, oh, I know you do safety stuff in Toronto. I said, I do. I know that uh, Australia is doing some interesting women's safety stuff. So I ended up coming over for a conference in 1991. Um, December of 1991 on local governments creating safer communities and um, uh, did some teaching at RMIT in 1995, came back for a conference on tall buildings in 2000 um, and got sent a job at in 2002 and the rest is history. I came here in 2003 to live full time. So it's anti-Olympics, then women's safety, tall buildings. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that's, you know, that's, we were just discussing this beforehand both the pleasure of my life and the the challenge of my life is that I'm interested in a lot of different things. I mean, what I'm interested in is the right to the city, put simply. And, um, you know, if you look at what those four things have in common, um, I was concerned that, uh, and then not just me, a bunch of people were concerned that the Olympics were a bad deal in terms of all of the community benefit it was supposed to bring. I 
I haven't changed my perspective on that. Um, the women's safety stuff was about the equal right to enjoy the city in public space and also the um, uh, opportunity to um, uh, create a city closer to our heart's desire, as David Harvey once said, um, and um, the housing work that I've ended up working on, and indeed my thesis was on affordable housing, also has to do with just the preconditions of a decent life and how people could have access to decent housing if we lived in a better structure to bring it a, about. So what do you think, why do you think it's so uh, intoxicating to get behind an Olympics bid and governments get, get so much money and mm. dedication to an Olympics bid and not to the idea of affordable housing or rights to the city? Well, I mean, put simply, there's two factors. One is a kind of psychological or cultural factor and one is a structural factor. And I always go back and forth between sort of ideas and material realities. So the idea is that people want a quick fix. And despite the fact that Olympics have almost never been a quick fix to cities' problems, People see it as, ah, you know, we'll bring in so much tourism that will be a great opportunity for us to create these showpiece arenas, etc. It happened in Melbourne in 56 kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And in 56, it wasn't so toxic. So now we get to the material realities, which is that large corporations will make money through the Olympics. It won't necessarily benefit people, but it will benefit large corporations. So it's organized sport is simply one aspect of capitalism and culture of greed or economy of greed that benefits through the Olympics. So one of the few, I realized the other weekend that, because, you know, I'm interested in parking. As far as I can tell, parking is what trumps all. It's the topic dearest to the heart of most politicians, except I realized if you decided to take a football oval and put parking on it, I'm Ooh. pretty sure I mentioned it to some people and they're like, stiffened yeah. up, it's like, not the footy. That would be, you know, Godzilla versus the giant shark. That would be a clash of titans. Yeah, no, people do get very passionate about sports in Melbourne. In some ways, it's one of the charm of Melbourne. But this is, this is an international thing, and, and the Olympics aren't even about sport. The Olympics are about um, national pride, about um, big ticket fame and it's about a bunch of things that unfortunately are very negative i don't think that's what the olympics was intended to be but it's what it's become so you've been here how long now like 16 years 16 years and you came to take up a position at the university of melbourne i did and what was your goal or what were your goals your research teaching i had being an academic was a second career for me. I'd had a first career in local government. So I'm talking about 88 when I first got in touch with Melbourne. By 89, I'd done this unusual segue, perhaps from an advocacy position outside the state to working in and against the state. As we say, I was a professional femocrat. I was hired by the city of Toronto to coordinate a violence prevention initiative. I did that for 10 years, and it was really a very rewarding time. I enjoyed it a great deal. Deal. And I got to a certain point when there was a forcible amalgamation in Toronto, as there was one under Kennett in Melbourne, where I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do the cool proactive shit that I 
had really enjoyed doing at the city of Toronto and I'd always done a little bit of teaching on the side like I'd always been uh, I'd published a book uh, I'd published a couple of articles I was a bit of a pracademic as they say um, so I went okay you know this is it if I don't do my PhD and finish it by 40 my FUD by 40 project I'm never going to um, do it I did my FUD by 40 I, when I you did. say FUD I always think of that Gary Larson cartoon <laughs> there's a dog he's trying to entice a cat into a washing machine so he can kill it or something yeah. And he scrolled on the front That's of right. his cat fud. <laughs> cat fud, exactly. No, it's amazing how often I hearken on to the far side in my metaphors. I totally get it. So, yes, I, I was attracted by the open door leading into the washing machine that said fud. <laughs> Um, and um, so my my goals were I loved teaching and I loved research and when I did my interview at the University of Melbourne I said to the folks there I'm not a pure researcher I'm an applied researcher I'm interested in changing things and I, I love Melbourne I'd been there several times already so I want to come to Melbourne and be an activist planner and foolishly enough they hired me to do that so I was like okay I'm going to teach I'm going to do activist planning um, you know those were my goals and I kind of achieved those goals so I'm pretty when I look back on the last 16 years I'm pretty satisfied um, done some good teaching I've done some good supervising I've done some good research um, and I've sort of hit the point where I feel like I can't be the same kind of change agent that I want to be and also I figure I'm going to be 56 next week that I have the one more chance to reinvent myself in terms of work so I'm going to go on to phase three not quite sure what phase three is but I, I want to go you on know to the phase, phase three two is finished yeah, I'm like, like I haven't been a serial monogamist in terms of my personal life. I've been married to the same guy for 35 years, but I've been a bit of a serial monogamist in terms of work. I had a very satisfying relationship with my first job for 10 years, needed to move on, had a very satisfying relationship with my next job for 16 years, need to move on kind of thing. But I think I have one more satisfying work relationship ahead of me. <laughs> categorize your research and some books that I've got. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like that with mine as well. Yeah. Um, the main ones, I guess you said rights was the key thing. I actually thought inclusivity was a key theme of mm -hmm. your work because it's sort of, it's housing, it's affordable housing, families, disability access, yeah. these kinds of issues, yeah. and women's safety. I mean, yeah. how would you, are they, does that capture it? And are you going to be continuing with one or all of those? Well, I've always been interested in marginality and the intersections of marginality. God, again, like a really long time ago, because I'm getting old, um, I was working on a book with a number of feminist writers, and we were talking about how everything, the crash test dummy, the dietary requirements, cities, are built for a certain ideal person. And the ideal person is generally male and generally able-bodied and generally not too young and generally not too old and um, generally white and um, you know that 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 sort of one-size-fits-all planning simply won't do anymore so I think that's been the ongoing sort of 
passion that I've had. It goes back to, you know, Fincher and Iverson's three logics. I'm interested in the redistribution aspect because I think that it's wrong that some people have an obscene amount and some people have very little. Um, I'm interested in the recognition aspect. Again, that one size fits all, but I'm also interested in the how do we manage coexistence in shared space, to use a term that Patsy Healy used. So it, it's always been, I've always been interested in the social logics of planning, and um, it's been hard for me to settle down into one particular aspect of the social logics, because they all are connected to me. And what are some of the frustrations you find or have found of in a context like Australia or Melbourne where a planner really doesn't really isn't the person making the decisions. No, a planner isn't the person making the decisions and a planner isn't necessarily the person getting the respect. Um, so I have found it frustrating to have this enormous number of idealistic brilliant students and preparing them for a system that will not take advantage of their ideas and their passion. I think a lot of people go, to, go into urban planning from all kinds of backgrounds, from history backgrounds. I was a bit of a history background from, you know, cartooning, from public health, from, you know, uh, environmentalism, etc. And they go into urban planning because they're passionate about cities and they want to make cities better. And sometimes they just end up crossing T's and dotting I's or spending a great deal of time and then a politician just kind of goes path and, and everything um, gets lost. Uh, and you know, one of the things I always say in my first lectures is the planners in general don't make decisions. They advise people and whether their advice is valued or not is another issue and I think that there's a, a overall very disturbing movement away from expertise and away from factual evidence towards sort of mouthfeel or even worse fear-mongering. There's a tremendous move towards fear-mongering about change and everybody Nobody likes change, you know, we don't like change because as we get older, the change is generally... Generally not, for the worse. Right? It's generally for the worse, that's right. So I think, I think again, there's sort of this cultural thing about fear of change, but my goodness, more and more we're um, making decisions based on fear of change, and that's really disturbing. There's an element, I find, of rationalisation as well. I don't think it's... It seems to me that when you have those fear-mongering narratives, it's not like, hey, everybody, we're really, really scared and we're going to do this even though we know it's not going to work. It's usually like, <laughs> we're really smart and we've thought about how dumb these planners are and we're going to do this because, you know, and so yeah. they rationalise it. And that's, yeah. that often terrifies me more than people just being... No, I mean, if they said they were fear, fearful, at least you could engage with them. But mm -hmm. it's more like immigration is the problem, um, taxes is the problem, loss of jobs is the problem kind of thing. And, and they never say, wow, you know, society's changed a great deal and it's going to have to change a little bit. And let's be on the front foot of it instead of on the back foot of it. I was going to ask you particularly about your work on affordable housing while you're here, but a while ago I remember... You were involved in research with developers, housing developers in, mm -hmm. in Melbourne about what their perception was of, you know, how, to what extent they could adapt different affordable housing models from, from other jurisdictions here. Mm -hmm. And I remember the interviews were often, the developers were saying, oh, that will never work here, yeah. or, you know, and then it was like, no, actually there's like three examples literally up the road, but they had such a surety of saying that would never work because 
I guess they never personally did it. Well, they're part of a global system, and they're getting their ideas from elsewhere, just as governments are, etc. But, um, I mean, just to give one little example, there's a launch housing project in um, uh, in the West now, in Marabinong, um, that's putting up uh, modular housing on um, uh, government land, in this case, a road allowance. That's happening all over the place, you know? So it's not like... It is working here, the things that worked elsewhere. We just have to sort of respect that. But yes, there is a particular, one of the things that drives me mad about Australia, and it's not unusual, is this um, uh, notion of um, the, I'm losing the word, but the specialness of Australia, the, the uniqueness yes. of Australia. And it, it's, it's not, I mean, every person's unique, every place is unique, sure. But Australia is not that unique, so yeah, there's a lot of, well, it worked here, but it would never work here, kind of thing. And it's like, <laughs> you know, dude, you live on a globe. It's just, a, I guess, a way of shutting down. A, it's a, a way of idea. shutting down a debate. So if you engage with developers or engage with government on basic, like, yes, I personally believe that everyone has the right to a home. Yes, I personally believe that there's an affordable housing crisis. Yes, I believe that we have a role to play. That's where you get a complete level of consensus. But when it comes to difficult choices like um, we're going to use this government land for um, non-profit housing or non-speculative housing, that's really where it goes. Oh, that would never work. So mm -hmm. sorry, community land trusts never work here. So can we talk a bit more about work, affordable housing work? What started it and what, I mean, you're interested in housing from my summary, and this is me putting words in your mouth, but it's partly coming from the point of view that Australia's housing market, it's it's largely private oriented. We have, haven't had a major investment in direct mm -hmm. supply of affordable housing. I guess there was that burst in the... GFC, but mm -hmm. essentially we're, we're quite market oriented. Yep. And there's key groups that you know don't have their housing needs met yeah. in that system, and that ranges from people on a fixed income or a low income, uh, people with a disability, mm -hmm. and even people on quite mod on moderate incomes or people with families that perhaps want to live. Yeah. And the growest, the fastest growing population of poor people are older women, um, and particularly older women who have not been in the paid workforce or not been in the paid workforce full time and who for various reasons divorce or uh, their husband dying or whatever um, or they never got married or whatever don't have the wealth cushion that housing has become uh, owned housing to fall back on. So the housing doesn't fit purpose anymore and that's really problematic and, and as you have identified I think that there's been a gradual shift that is very much recognized by most people from housing as use value, to use the Marxist term, so, you know, uh, I need a house to live in, to the tremendous wealth that you can create through housing. And there's no doubt, I've just, I've just benefited yeah. from housing as wealth creation when I sold my place here, you know. So I, I know how tempting it is to have all of this essentially unearned wealth land in your lap just because you lived in a place for 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's cool in a way if you're the individual beneficiary and it's terrible if you can't get into that fucked up system and it is not the way to meet a basic need. 
and and we see this in Australia in education. You know, a move towards private education. We see it in healthcare. A move towards um, private healthcare. There's a problem when basic needs are monetized in that fashion. Because then you, I guess, take and amplify any existing kind of disparities, and yeah. you have housing as a financial financialization. Yeah. And I guess Australia. We have inherited this attitude that you know the home is special, mm-hmm. and but partly the way that's expressed is that we give all these tax exemptions and things that make it extra special for making money. Yeah, it's a it, like the situation of renters and in general people who don't own housing is a, a low right situation, a low control situation. So we create a situation where people desperately want to get out of not owning homes and they benefit tremendously through owning homes. But if you don't get into that system, you are treated like a second class citizen and it becomes a perpetuating problem. It's just like, you know, you also work on public transport and, um, you know, uh, if you don't own a car, um, it's very difficult to use public transport and if more and more people vote to own private cars, then public transport gets worse and worse. So the gap between the haves and the have-nots grows greater. ideas have you been involved in that maybe cut through or showed signs of, of change for the better? Uh, well, I think that the launch housing example that I just gave is very good and I've seen some tremendously innovative examples. Another that I give right off the top of my head is um, the work that Port Phillip did in two projects, Woodstock and kind of Climb Place, building above parking mm. lots, you know, if you, it doesn't get much more wasted space, as you know, than parking lots. Um, and they didn't even lose any parking lot spaces, they just built them, they used the air rights. Um, so those have both been really, really um, innovative. The challenge that I'm bringing with me to Canada is that we need to scale them up. Right now we spend so much time creating beautiful one-off innovations and then the challenge is how can we scale it up to meet the need and that's an organizational challenge because a lot of nonprofits don't have the capacity to scale up mm. um, and government doesn't want to scale up public housing although in some ways they don't have the capacity anymore either they've been denuded of the people who know how to develop housing um, but it needs non-speculative housing does need to be scaled up and there are like um, when I was in Vancouver last year I was really inspired by all of the nonprofits, all of the nonprofit co-ops, all of the nonprofit housing associations who are quite small individually, working together, um, pooling their resources and going, here's our big vision and um, here's how we're going to institutionally develop it. And I, I'm really excited when I see that. They were all talking about the Vienna model where you know, 60% of housing is still non-speculative and that's exciting to me. So is there anything 
that Canada's what did you say Toronto then or that that was Vancouver Vancouver being you know its usual self-satisfied self it's like not even it's Canada light I don't know where it comes from it's its own place um no that's not happening in Toronto at all and it's not happening in the place that I'm moving to Ottawa terribly well um but I think that it does offer because Ottawa like Canberra or something it's kind of halfway between. It's better than Canberra. <laughs> it's a lot like Adelaide. Right. Um, it's it's a million and a quarter. It's about the same population as Adelaide, mm-hmm. and it kind of does its own thing, and and quite often quite progressive in the way that Adelaide is. So yeah. I think the best way I could describe it is it's a Canadian Adelaide. So what what ideas or lessons can you take from Melbourne and apply to Ottawa? Well. One of the things I love about Melbourne is people love hanging out in open space. People have parties on verges. Um, people uh, sit with their braziers in winter, which of course is complete wimp winter compared to Ottawa, but still it's a winter, um, you know, and uh, sip their lattes and bitch about the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes I'm frustrated that people don't use public space more and don't sort of revere public space more. But I am, I do love the way that, you know, alleyways have amazing street art and, um, and, and quite often you see space really nurtured. Um, some people have really productive verges, you know, they have beautiful herbs or flowers on mm-hmm. their verges. So I do love that about Melbourne. I think that Melbourne is slowly getting its head around the notion of transit-oriented development, although it's always astounded me how much of a slam dunk that is and how difficult it is to kind of put it into people's brains. Um, Ottawa's just a, it's got a little five-stop train line, LRT type thing, and it's about to get another ten stops, a second line, as part of a really ambitious um, LRT proposal. And it's got, so it's got this train line happening in the middle of government land, because when you're a capital, you have lots of government land. And the um, and it's got a non-profit housing association, a public housing association, that is, you know, basically sitting there with a knife and fork going, get me that government land. So you have the institution that's willing to scale up. You've got the capacity for it to happen. Um, and you have the right location for it. So I, I feel like I'm... And there's no planning school in Ottawa. So I'm moving to Ottawa and everyone's going, oh, that's interesting. I kind of like planning. Tell me more, you know, instead of, oh, you know, we have four planning schools and we hate them all kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a slightly different approach in mm-hmm. Ottawa. And, you know, we'll see how long that particular honeymoon lasts. But um, I'm, I'm quite excited about the possibility of getting a little bit closer to the ideal of what a, an equitable and inclusive city would be like. Yeah, I mean, that, and it seems like an appetite for, not if not change, then certainly um, projects and yeah, getting yeah. involved at the moment. Given that, as you pointed out, Vancouver and Ottawa are so different and Melbourne's got its own dynamics, what <laughs> role do you think, say, we're, Australia's coming up to a federal election soon, what's the capacity of a federal government versus cities and local government now. Huge unmet capacity. So again, one of my frustrations about Australia is that the notion of urban policy is so associated with one particular political party. That craziness has never happened in Canada. I mean, the Conservatives aren't 
horror, you know, incredibly fond of cities, but there has been um, uh, something called the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which is quite different from Ohori because the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation is an urban and housing research but also finance instrument that although it's separately incorporated because it gives mortgages and things like that is very much seen as part of the federal government bureaucracy so throughout the well pre-world war ii and post-world war ii period the cmhc has existed to guide housing policy in a way that ohuri has not been able to guide housing policy and right now the cmhc is sitting on 40 billion dollars over 10 years to put into housing infrastructure and affordable housing infrastructure and um there was a brief period where it looked like the Conservative government was going to get rid of a very rich data source, which was the full census, and that was beaten back by a coalition of, you know, vaguely intelligent people. So um, what Australia could do is have a, a Teflon major cities unit and fund it properly, and that there would be a housing function as part of that, and that they would work closely with the ABS, which is a really great organization with really great publications, to use its data wisely to um, foment national policy. Um, yeah, you know, the states do have their own way of dealing with things, and sometimes the states don't communicate very much, but of course the federal government, whether the, the coalition has been talking about, well, states need to behave. Mm-hmm. Now, what they've been saying is they need to behave by we like highways, could they like highways too, and that's tended to disadvantage Victoria, but... Um, well, the current Victorian government. Um, the bottom line, I think the national government does, as, as people who get 80% of the taxes, they kind of have a right to say, we're going to uh, transfer payments to the states in return to certain national goals. So I have nothing wrong with the federal government having a strong housing policy. It is, of course, highly contingent on who's in power, but it's astonishing to me that the coalition goes, we don't need an urban policy arm. I mean, that's that's a bridge too far for me. I mean, I know you, you talked into and dealt a lot with I guess was it called getting to yes, the getting, yeah. getting the local community on board, and so beyond there's the the government that represents us, but often the, the, not everybody on the ground is on board with things like affordable housing. Yeah, and NIMBYism can be um, a force for entropy, absolutely. But I think the dialogue that we need to have again, it goes back to that fear of change issue. Like you know, this neighborhood's going to change. Um, this seems like a fair share of population growth um, by some strange coincidence the state government which is in charge of planning is also in charge of infrastructure provision so here's the increased infrastructure you should expect to incorporate uh, to, to meet the needs of a growing population and um, then you have a dialogue about sort of what are particular infrastructure priorities, what are particular design priorities, what are particular heritage priorities as this inevitable growth occurs. But 
the notion that you can lock the gate is outrageous to me and also the notion that there's so much emphasis in the third party rights system of planning in Victoria to say no to particular developments as opposed to saying yes to a vision towards community and, and approving or, or um, at least reviewing developments according to that need. And that what that scenario described where you know the conversation about what infrastructure goes with growth, I think I've, I've really noticed just how much, I think most people in Melbourne don't have much trust that no. growth is a company because they don't see it happening. Yeah, so. exactly. I mean, the, the politicisation, just to give one example, of public school provision, it, it so much the loudest voices win. Um, and, and in the, the other thing that the federal government's done that's so appalling over the last 20 years is privatise so much public education. So you can't even make a successful argument. X number of people are going to be moving in there, ergo you need why schools because people go oh they'll go to the private school or oh we'll expect the private school to do it they'll go 30 kilometers because they have choice isn't that wonderful yeah even i would suggest that i mean in the work i've been doing on public transport in the in the outer suburbs schools are often they they're doing the best in terms of matching growth to provision. Mm. public transport is not even there's not even an agreement that it's something you necessarily need. Yeah. Alone in it's appalling. Point. And then I was speaking to someone last week who isn't at all involved in planning who moved from Preston to uh, Point Cook, had a kid, wanted a cheap place to live, that sort of thing. And she said it's it's almost like a, a joke, uh, Point Cook Road. You know, mm. like she gets up at 5 a.m. to um, get to work. Uh, when I say she gets up, of course she has a young kid, she gets up at 5 a.m. She leaves at 5 a.m. in order to go to work. Because otherwise, you get to the end of your little privatized spaghetti strap uh, development and hit Point Cook Road and it's impossible to get onto Point Cook Road. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's it's gotten into the end stages of the absurd. Yeah. I was just looking at a survey thing today of someone that lived. It wasn't Point Cook, it was near there, and it said, like, how long do you spend getting to work? And we were like, we have to check this number. Does this make sense? It's like 140 minutes, I think it said. It was like to drive. And I think that's from the driving to the station and driving the whole way. I'm not sure. But yeah. Point Cook's not even, for people not from Melbourne, it's not even that far away. It's just yeah. not well And connected. it may be easier to get um, to work from... Castlemaine or Bendigo or somewhere, you know, several hundred kilometers or a couple of hundred kilometers away than it is to get from a place 20 kilometers away because um, we have relied so much on roads and on cars to solve our transport issues. And, and that's just, you know, I love Melbourne so much, but it's such a fucking absurd place. You know, <laughs> we didn't really even get to like all your work on children and children's rights in city, and that, yeah. that's bound up in that. So it is cars work for some people, but for a child, it's not really. No, you know, it is maybe the absurd is the word. I've just finished reading Kafka this week, so I feel like I can use Kafka with impunity now. But yeah, I think that there is a slowly increasing understanding of good intensification and I've seen that I mean it's not perfect but um, uh, in 
uh, Collingwood, in Footscray, in a lot of what used to be seen as a middle ring of suburbs, now they're being seen in Preston. Um, even in Reservoir, you know, the, 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 slow, the slowly expanding middle suburb, shall we say, you know. <laughs> now they're being seen as inner suburbs. And, and unfortunately, that's been accompanied by huge... Um, housing price increases and so the ability to take advantage of those wonderful streetscapes and those wonderful amenities and the wonderful infrastructure becomes more and more the um, purview of the limited few. Having said that, what is being created is truly beautiful and exciting and I, I love I love the design scene, I love the architecture scene in Melbourne. It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful city. It's just I'd love everyone to be able to benefit from that beautiful, beautiful city. And um, I'm disturbed about people being priced out of that amenity. Anything else you'd like to add? One thing I've always loved about Melbourne is, and it's been true from the first time I was here, is there's so many people interested in urban planning. Now, sometimes, you know, as I've, I've joked before, I'd rather say that I sell drugs near schools than say that I teach urban planning because um, a lot of people have some very negative views about urban planning. Everyone's an expert. Yeah, Um, everyone's an expert and that's actually cool. It's cool to sort of say I'm an urban planner and not have it fall with a thud like you know I'm an expert in I don't know uh, banana systems or something like that I'd love you know to meet someone in a party that was worked on bananas <laughs> <laughs> it's just me I went, I went to a party recently where the guys looked like oh I did my PhD on brine shrimp and I'm like wow <laughs> tell me more <laughs> and his wife is like god I need to check what here somebody wants to listen to his stories yeah but, no brine but shrimp yeah, is a really mean. good metaphor <laughs> The thing that's bothered me the most about Australia, this isn't a Melbourne thing, this is an Australia thing, is that more and more this very unholy group of people, um, and by unholy, what I mean is I've noticed it from environmentalists who consider themselves left-wing as well as some you know, racists, is this notion that population increases the problem as opposed to bad planning. And again, it's, it's fear and it's displacement of fear and it's, it's disturbed me as a white-skinned English-speaking immigrant, um, but it's infinitely more disturbing to anyone who um, is more marginalized and is told that they somehow are the problem yeah, as opposed to bad systems. You're the reason why I can't drive to work on time. You're you know? the reason I can't find a parking spot at the You're train the space station. I can't find a parking spot at the train station, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that seems to be... That may, in fact, be uniquely Australian. That's me guessing to blame immigration for parking. Well, I mean, look at Brexit. So it, it's not unique to Australia. Were they about parking, though? Or they? Oh, the parking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> being an immigrant is pretty common, but being doing it because you're worried about finding parking space. No, it is, and and I don't know whether you remember that slide. I think it comes from you, from a City of Yarra workshop where um, we kind of mind mapped all of the um, areas of concern, and it was like parking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
than you know, like you know, any other form of like health, child care, housing. It was like they 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 appeared, but then there was like Godzilla parking, hulking out parking, and it's it, it, that is true that it's um, you, you've got your finger on the light guys there, mm, and there is like. I don't know. I'm not. I wouldn't be speaking to my expertise to comment on the National Psyche of Australia, but it's certainly true that we have some kind of um, baggage from our colonial um, violent past that fixates on borders and control and things like that. Yeah. What's Canada's one before? We, what's their anxiety being not being America? Or yeah, being I think the I think the anxiety is not being America. That's that's very much part of the zeitgeist. Where as we are very much like America, um, I would agree with you that Australia, Japan, and the UK, all city, all countries rather that I like a great deal, have. Um, problems associated with being islands um, and uh, that make them think that they're somehow um, uh, separate and special and they so much aren't and the U.S. has it even without being an island so I don't know how the U.S. got it but there is this um, uh, sense of exceptionalism that's, that's, word the, I was word, that's the word we were searching for earlier <laughs> that um, uh, is uh, you know one of the least attractive qualities of Australia. Well, I'm sorry to make you wind up on a negative comment. I could edit it out if required. I'd like to thank you, Professor Carolyn Weizmann, for being a great colleague and yeah. also being, I think, one of the highlights of having you in Melbourne is how, how much you involved the, what do you call it, the academy with practitioners as well and getting conversation going. And well, thank having you, Liz. It's always been a pleasure working with you and I love the way that you mix your interest in the arts and culture with your interests in research and I've always loved the way that that works together. Thank you very much. Thanks to Caroline. You can find her in Ottawa after her um, farewell tomorrow. Indeed. Yes.